Welcome to episode 11 of Mastication Nation, the podcast that brings you all that is wonderful about food without the painful bloating and deep, deep sense of regret that usually occurs this time of year. Because, Will, it is New Year's Eve. We're yes, s- and we have nothing we better have to nothing do on New Year's Eve but talk to each other. Well, to be fair, for you, it's New Year's Eve day. So you have a little less shame than I do because it's 8.30 at night here in London. And I have no plans on doing anything. <laughs> it's Alex. Alex is actually lying to you. He's about to drop acid and go to an all-night rave yes. with some glow sticks. Yes, I'm sure my heavily pregnant wife would be very uh, appreciative of that. But yeah, so since we've recorded, we've had Christmas. How was your Christmas? Did you guys Did you guys throw down? Yeah, uh, I have to uh, make a public apology on this podcast uh, for right. That'll be a first. Yeah. Uh, at last episode, <laughs> our holiday episode, I said um, that we were of the, we both agreed that we were both people that, that Christmas doesn't really mean anything as long as we have our traditions and around good people and the food doesn't really matter. Well, uh, I apologize because um, apparently it does matter to me. And uh, my wife had booked a, uh, we were gonna, we were by ourselves in, in, in California this, this Christmas and we were going go to go to a, uh, a hotel for Christmas, really nicely decorated, have somebody else do Christmas for us. We booked it and then they released the menu to us and it was not Christmassy at all. It was like your Christmas options were a steak or I think it was squab, which is not terrible. There's roast, but I got this very deep down sensation of this is not what I want. And so I just sort of freaked out and had a minor, I'm going to do this myself moment. Ran to Whole Foods probably on Christmas Eve, which is no fun. Uh, Bought myself a nice two pound uh, large large steak basically it's a prime rib for two people uh and and we cooked it ourselves and it was overall very very nice but i have to apologize to my wife because (laughs) you know and to you fine listeners because i I misled you and i didn't know that i was gonna have this such a visceral reaction until oh well it's it's i think i think you're right i think you you, you you know your freak out was probably justified, but I don't think that that makes the point that you made in the previous episode any less valid. What you said was, and I agreed with you, is that what's on the table is kind of irrelevant, but the people around you, and I'm not saying mm-hmm. that your wife takes anything away from this, but the combination of you and your wife plus you know what the food that was being offered up you could get on any other day does not equal Christmas. If it had been you and your wife and an amazing Christmas spread, it would have been a glorious, wonderful Christmas, but there was nothing Christmassy about it. So I can understand why you had a a bit of a meltdown in a very public setting. So did we, we call we, the cops? Or did, no, did, thankfully, <laughs> thankfully, I, I didn't want to go down that route. But uh, uh, you know, we were able to wake up at whatever time we wanted to wake up, open our presents in whatever order we wanted to open our presents, drink the wine that we wanted to drink, and watch uh, the movies that we wanted to watch on Christmas Day. And it was uh, that was very interesting and liberating. We've never had a Christmas by ourselves at our own home in the last seven, eight years, and so this was. This might be we might cherry pick some from, from traditions from this, but we did our holiday. Sorry, we did our, our Christmas breakfast. We did champagne at nine a.m. with some smoked salmon, and that was the way to start of the day. How how was your Christmas slash Boxing Day? Great. Uh, I'm a, such a huge fan of Christmas as I think the was revealed in the previous episode. But it was great because when you have kids. Christmas like gets re-energized because you get through this period of like 18 years old to N, where N is wherever you have kids who are old enough to appreciate Christmas, where you're sort of like, yeah, Christmas is fine, but it's you, the magic and sparkle kind of disappears. But when you have kids and they're like 
freaking out because Santa's come and all of that <laughs> stuff. It's it's brilliant. So my in-laws were in town from California for the whole Christmas period, which is wonderful because they got to experience a British Christmas, but I also put on for them a few of the traditions that they're used to. So every Christmas morning, they make linguisa and eggs because they're of of Portuguese. My father-in-law is of Portuguese uh, heritage. So I made my equivalent of of linguisa and eggs for them in the morning, which is kind of fun. The <laughs> how 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 am I going to admit to this? Yes, okay, I will admit to this. Not not even my in laws know this. I was so brokenly hungover <laughs> on Christmas Eve that I didn't get out of bed all day, and what I was supposed do, to cook. What did you do the twenty third? I went out with some friends for a quick dinner. And made the fatal mistake of mixing grain and grape. Yeah. And yeah, I did it like what happens to me like once every seven and a half years, something like this catastrophic happens. And I was supposed to spend all day Christmas Eve cooking and I couldn't. And by Christmas Day morning, I was just about back on my feet and <laughs> and able to and able to participate in the common discourse. But anyway, I got over that bit and we we had a wonderful Christmas meal at my grandmother's, which I, I did most of the cooking. We spatchcocked and barbecued a turkey, which turned out great. Uh, that's like my new th- thing. I've, I'm so happy that I I figured that out. That's a that's a, a, a serious eat. I don't Kenji Lopez out is a big proponent of spatchcocking big yeah. birds like that. Mm-hmm. And there is somebody else on the site who who took it the next uh, step further and talked about the procedure for grilling it on a Weber. And so those two methodologies combined gave a slightly smoky, evenly cooked, moist breast, you know, nicely cooked dark meat, crispy skin, uh, and it net knocks about at least an hour off the off the grilling time if you, you keep you the like bird intact. You like the uh, Bob's Burgers, right? I love Bob's Burgers because the the most recent Thanksgiving episode, Bob becomes obsessed obsessed with spatchcocking a chicken, yeah, a uh, turkey, sorry, and it's just yeah. like all about like that. So I guess you, the Bob's Burgers crew, and and, and Kenji are in good company. I think it's I think it's a great way of doing it. So that's the only way I'm going to do it. And you know, we had we had I made American style stuffing, so big chunks of the the stale or dried out bread and sausage meat and sage and all that stuff as opposed to the the balls of, of chestnut stuffing here that that's also fine but uh since i was making it, i made it my way and then another kenji uh recipe which is what is he called over the top brussels sprouts i think we talked about this in the previous yeah my, my my friend Kristen, who i spent christmas eve no so christmas day evening with also had just done that as well and thought it was the best thing like craziness they loved it it as is well. it's so easy and it and it's one of those recipes where everybody just freaks out and goes how did you make this i could eat this by itself and and it's it's a sort of you know the, the ace up your sleeve of recipes because it really is painfully easy well, and let, it let, and it's Let's put a pin in that because um, I'll come back to that. You're, you're making me think of things specifically for the best thing I've eaten since last week. But mm-hmm. uh, last, well, it was last week almost. Um, let's dive into some of the feedback we got from that uh, that episode. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I think you have a nice little anecdote from our sister-in-law. Yeah, but my, my sister-in-law, uh, our other brother's wife, uh, she said to me after Christmas, oh, you, you guys didn't mention or I'm surprised no one mentioned – pickled walnuts 
for on Christmas. Yeah. And I thought she was joking, but this is a real thing. And apparently it's been a, been a British tradition f- since the 18th century. And it's, <laughs> I, first of all, I love the Wikipedia definition. Pickled walnuts are a traditional English pickle made from walnuts. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Wikipedia. That really helps. Um, so <laughs> what they are is you get them in a jar and they, you take the walnut while it's still green and the shell hasn't hasn't set. It's still soft. It's not like the the hard mm-hmm. conquer like brown. Thing. Yeah, yeah, that you would get off the tree. Uh, and then you take them and you put them in brine for at least 10 days. And after that, you drain them and they, they dry in the air. And after, once they hit the air, the brine uh, reacting with an enzyme in the skin causes a chemical reaction to take place. And the walnuts turn this like black color when mm, they're exposed okay. to sunlight. So then you take those, which is just weird when you look at them. So you take them and then you put them in a, uh, in a, in a pickling solution, which can be just a straight normal pickling solution like you would get, you know, dill pickles, that type of thing. Or uh, you can add um, different flavorings to them. And then you leave them between five days and eight weeks. I had never heard of this in my life. And so I was I was very happy that my sister-in-law taught me this because this is something entirely – I haven't tried them. I haven't tried them. Have you? No. I, I, I think I was tangentially aware of them but not in any way of like people eating them. But speaking of pickling, I have my mother-in-law in town uh, for for the period between Christmas and uh, New Year's and, and my father-in-law as well. But like they were listening to the holiday period and apparently in the 1960s in New England, Piccadilly had a vogue because like out of nowhere – I get this text message from from mother-in-law and she was like, two things that just took me back to my childhood. One, the pork roast. And apparently, mm-hmm. like it seems like up to 1970 or something like that, you could easily find pork with the skin still attached to it uh, in supermarkets. And two, pick a lily. And they would make, you know, they'd find it in their in their um in their closet or sorry, in the cupboards and stuff like that. And then also apparently there was another restaurant in Manchester, New Hampshire that my father-in-law is from and they would have that there as well. So apparently for this weird period in the 60s and 70s, Piccadilly was known in the US and then went the way of the dodo apparently. But but there's it, it's weird that that kind of made the trip over to New England. That is weird and I love it uh, because it's such a weirdly British thing. I – Got a message. Actually, it wasn't even a message from Sir Greg Barnes, friend of the podcast, friend of the world, with just a animated GIF of his fridge door opening and zooming in on a pretty much empty bottle of Piccadilly. And he says that he gets panic attacks when he doesn't have a, at least several jars about his person. Yeah. No, <laughs> I know I he's first, very passionate I first about it. I was introduced to it was at Greg Barnes' house in Devon. So. I like it. I Like I said in the last episode, I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of it. Uh, so I will add Piccadilly and pickled walnuts to my my shopping list for this because I want to I want to I want to re-experience Piccadilly and I want to experience pickled walnuts for the first time. Unless... Our sister-in-law is trolling us massively, but that doesn't seem like the kind of thing that she would do. So Twitter user, and I know this guy, Ben, uh, Pimp My Dipper. I want to talk about Ben for two reasons. One, he's a listener of the show, and he talked about Brussels sprouts and sent us some beautiful pictures of what he was making. And he did a Brussels sprout dish where they look it looks like they're sautéed in cream. Mm-hmm and garlic. And then he adds cheese and breadcrumbs. So another another gratin. So I'm, like, I'm happy to see that, that uh, we're not the only people that do that. But Ben also chronicles his attempts to make sourdough bread. 
Twitter on his Twitter feed, uh, to the point where he has renamed his account Sourdough Failures. Is he <laughs> is he UK based or is he? He Ben is, he? is UK based. He's up uh, near Manchester. Okay, so Ben, uh, I'm in the the I live in the world epicenter of sourdough. I live in San Francisco Bay Area. And maybe what I'll do is we'll exchange details and I'll send you a sourdough starter and maybe you can actually get some some good stuff rather than what they make in England, which is terrible. Well, he's trying to make it. That's what he's doing. He's trying to make it. And yeah. I think, you know, he Ben is very, uh, <laughs> he's, he, I admire his honesty and transparency because he'll post images of all of these sourdough failures that he's had. And sourdough is not easy until you get a consistent starter going so i admire his perseverance and his, yeah that's at pimp my dipper i don't know what that means i probably <laughs> don't want to know what that means but he also has a, a big green egg and is always pulling amazing things off of it so definitely follow him up all right so we had a little bit of a clarification was this this is from the ice cream episode yeah. wasn't it yeah so we had a, an interesting point of clarification that uh from paul papadimitri who mentioned Wooden that. stick should be outlawed, and Wooden I, and I, I should didn't be get that until and I he mentioned, clarified. Well, I mentioned it. to my yeah, wife, and she it. called us the idiots because she knew exactly what he was talking about just from me mentioning it. and We couldn't figure it out. So, well, sorry, I, go ahead. I had a feeling that it was something to do with the wooden sticks, but I didn't know that that people were so texture sensitive to these to these sticks. And it's not just the sticks that they give you to sometimes the ice cream. He's he's specifically referring to popsicle sticks, right? It's this thing that might be called xylophobia, but the the feeling of wet wood under the tongue. Hmm. Uh, he, you know, he just just can't do it. And it's like a tongue I depressor. Can, Maybe it's linked that. to going yeah, to the doctor. Yeah, that, that's actually that's a good point. That's a good point. But I mean, I'm not 100 percent sure. How, you know what implement they would wrap a popsicle around if they didn't use a popsicle stick. So. <laughs> Well, but yes, thank you for that point of clarification. Well, actually, going back to our ice cream episode real quick, a friend of mine, Kieran Bryan, who uh, award-winning Channel 4 documentarian and news person um, who we should 100% have on the show when it comes to maybe P for prison because he spent one fateful Christmas period in a Russian gulag uh, for for some of his journalistic endeavors. Uh, and his stories about what they were fed <laughs> in a Russian prison are kind of harrowing, so he might he might be a good person to have on at some point. But he was talking about the ice cream episode, and he tweet, he, text, he tweeted me and said, "Ice cream is not my thing." Hashtag terrible terrible human, but true. And I said, "It's not everybody's." And thing. I wrote back, "Well, that makes you a terrible person. You made yeah, you're true." And nope, nope, Karen, you're out. You're you're in, no longer can talk you in the face. This Christmas in England reminded me of a few things that m- mince pies are are amazing. The British love television. <laughs> And British ice cream really does have a long way to yeah. go because there was a lot of it consumed during the Christmas period. I saw Ben and Jerry's on sale and I grabbed a couple of pints and my wife and I have been eating it over the last few days and it is a good reminder of how good ice cream can yeah. be. So we still have work to do, people. I think there's got to be some kind of revolution. <laughs> uh, we had a lovely re- iTunes review and folks, if you have a second, please do leave us a review. It does help people discover this podcast. So bring people into the fray. Uh, this is uh, Paul who said, the podcast that makes you food smart, food happy, and hungry. I want to eat all the food. And yes, I keep writing the word food in this review as Alex and Will have that gift, making you fall in love with food all over again. That's very kind, Paul. Thank you. And if again, if you can leave us a, 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 a an iTunes review, that would be hugely appreciated. And I noticed that we had quite a big bump in subscribers lately. So if this is the first time listening to the to the show, 
welcome, and I apologize in advance. <laughs> we do not claim responsibility for anything you try in the kitchen or any trips to the emergency room. I did take a great deal of pride in making Sir Greg Barnes laugh out loud on a crowded bus. <laughs> from, <laughs> crowded bus from London to out in the West where, where his family hails from. It was a reference to our, our honey episode where we talked about the uh, the bee's abdomen or anus taking up most of its body at some point in the yeah. uh, in the the life cycle of the of the hive so i'm proud of that if, if that's what i've achieved with this podcast <laughs> then it's been worth it what uh, so it's sunday night for me sunday afternoon i believe your in-laws are in the in the other room watching the patriots yes what are they Albert. drinking what are they drinking Usually the games on the East Coast start at like one in the afternoon, but we're on the West Coast and uh, so games start at 10 a.m. And I was able to figure out how to get the Patriots game on the West Coast. So that's always good to get you into your good graces of your in-laws. They're drinking Bloody Marys, uh, which is fairly common, I guess, for both the day and the morning. Um, I am drinking a... Not a Bloody Mary. No, I I can't stand vodka and I can't stand Bloody Marys. Um, Oh, I mean, I can, I'm sure there's some good vodka out there, but it's one of those drinks that when you drink when you're young and you, it, I can't drink tequila yeah. for the same reason. It just makes me want to retch. But I am drinking, we did a couple of uh, beer tours because we have so many beer, breweries around us. And I'm drinking a double IPA, and I'm usually not an IPA person from Gilman Brewing, which is down the street from us. And it is their auto shop IPA, uh, 8.2%. So if I hear me, if you hear me slurring my words by the end of the episode, you'll know why. It's also why I'm drinking it in a very small tumbler glass. Damn. Exactly. It's it's pretty good. I also we also got a um a 64 ounce growler from there of um, their secret brunch, which is infused with maple bacon flavor. Ugh. It actually doesn't taste like that. It just tastes like a a, uh, a English style ale that has got you know more multi flavor to it. I was suspect when I first tried it, but it's actually really good. No, I stand by my. Ugh. How do they do that? Do they just do they do they just put bacon? In, how does do they just like? I want to know how they do that. I don't know, and I'm going to go talk to them because I spent enough time there. Yeah, I'd like to know. I'd like to know how they did that. Uh, well, it's New Year's Eve, and so I am drinking champagne. I'm drinking champagne or sparkling uh, wine. F- off. <laughs> I'm drinking champagne. Well, there goes uh, our our, uh, our friendly rating on this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing a little creative. Censorship won't solve. No, actually, I shouldn't say that because there are many wonderful sparkling wines. I'm a big fan of Spanish cava mm-hmm. and and dry proseccos. But no, I'm drinking uh, Piper uh, Heidsieck, uh, the monopole, the, the the blue, which is nice. It's fine. It's lovely, actually, uh, because it's New Year's Eve, and why not? Because you're about to why get not? crunk. Well, I can't because if my wife goes into labor, <laughs> I have to drive her to the hospital. So I have to manage my input rather rather sensible very sensibly actually so i'm drinking a modest glass of champagne so Um, apparently this is one of i got some feedback this is one of people's favorite sections of uh the podcast what was the best thing you ate since we last recorded uh well i haven't been any no i've been to milan but i was there for like not very long at all that's a great city if you ever have a chance to go great city lovely people i don't can't tell you much about the food because i wasn't there for very long my kids love ramen Mm-hmm. They absolutely love it. So we went to we had this wonderful day in in London with my in laws and my kids. We went on a river cruise on the Thames, up and down the Thames, okay. and Santa came. 
Santa just appeared. Santa was, I think, very accurately uh, from Northern Europe. Okay. This particular Santa. <laughs> Santa. Yes. And I think he um, he really liked his job or he was uh, high. Because <laughs> <laughs> he was really, really good at his job to the point where one of the uh, quote unquote elves leaned over to me and said, gosh, Santa, Santa really can't stop moving, huh? Like, yeah. I have I have, I have, have a follow up. I'm sorry. I, I just have an anecdote because I don't know where it came from. Came to, came to me. It's just kind of how my brain works. Uh, reindeers in the northern in the northern reaches of, of the world um, eat this berry that kind of gets them a bit messed up, um, oh. and the Finnish will uh, drink the urine that's been like distilled of the reindeer that will uh, get rid of the toxins, but still give them a nice high. So Santa is literally flying in both senses of the word. That's what it was. That's, yes, that's clearly Santa. what it was. He'd been drinking tainted reindeer piss. <laughs> That explains it. I'll tell my kids tomorrow morning. Um, and and then we went to this. We took them to the Snowman, which is this wonderful production in the West End, and they loved it. We've been. This is the third year we've been. But the, well, I said to the kids, "Okay, we're going to go to London. We can have any kind of food we want. You can have dim sum. We can have burgers. We can have whatever you want. Ramen, ramen, ramen." So we took them to Shoryu Ramen, which has like they have a, they have a joint in Fukuoka, and they have maybe six in the UK, three or four in London, and they do good. Uh, Hakata Fukuoka style ramen, and it was just really, really good. Really nice pork belly and all of the things that you need to make ramen good. And they had takoyaki, which is, I think I talked about that in the episode after we came back from Osaka, which are the octopus balls in the batter. Yep. They're in the recently released episode of, of Attache that we did in Osaka. And they were very, very good takoyaki. So, other than Christmas Day, we'll set that aside, it's too easy. The wonderful ramen was easily the best thing I've eaten in the last since we last recorded. I'm going to take the pin out that I placed earlier, and I'm also apparently taking the easy route because I am going to talk about a side dish from Christmas. Oh, uh, side. Okay, well, well, I'll let that fly. <laughs> so it wasn't obviously uh, like I, I I got the meat and everything, and I did the whole wrapping it in paper towel for a couple of days and pulling out all the moisture, et cetera, um, or a day because I got it on Christmas Eve. What? Um, no, wait. What? What are you talking about? Like if you get a big steak or just a steak in general, if you put it yeah. on a wire rack and then oh, wrap yes. it into did in you paper salt towel. It? So I've done it in the past when I've salted it and it just it gets too salty. Um, so you can actually just wrap it and I've wrapped it three times, three separate times. And each time there was still significant leakage into the paper towel. So just that alone shows how much you can get out of it. And you're doing that to intensify the flavor. Aren't you doing that to, to increase the moisture as well? Because it breaks down the molecules and then you the water comes out and then is brought back in? No, because because basically it's like dry aging. Imagine if you t- if I were smart enough, I should have done this as an experiment. Imagining way imagine weighing the piece of meat when you first get it out of out of Whole Foods and then wrapping it in paper towel, discarding that after about six hours, and the and the paper towel will just be drenched in pink liquid. Uh, then wrapping it again another six hours, probably you know still fairly wet, uh, and then one more time, and you can put a little salt on there to exacerbate things. And then you re-wear it about by the time that you are about to cook it. And then the difference, uh, as Alison Brown says, the difference in percentage is the difference in increase in flavor because you're pulling out like water that doesn't do anything for you and all you're left with is more of the meat and the protein. So uh, that's what dry aging basically does in combination with giving some more funky fungus spore fun stuff going on there as well. <laughs> um, but my so my best thing I we ate was um, – can't remember who's – 
recipe it was. And I'll, I feel sorry. I think it might have been a, I don't think it was a serious, it might have been a serious eats episode, uh, um, recipe, but it also might have been an Nigella Lawson uh, recipe. I can't remember. It was um, roasted Brussels sprouts, but then with grated lemon zest, olive oil, uh, onions, and then cook some bacon off at the same time, put that all into a, into a bowl and it got like nice and roasty and everything. And then a little bit of um, balsamic uh, on top mm. of it. And that was really, really good. That does sound good. Yeah. And it's like a nice, most people freak out because they hate the taste of boiled Brussels sprouts. And then some people have gone either in two directions. They either fry their Brussels sprouts or they go the Kenji uh, route and just dump a, a metric load of of cream on top of it, but this is somewhere in the middle, and I like that sort of like super bitter, burnt flavor that you get out of it. But then it also caramelizes at the same time, and you get uh, with the bacon, it just works perfectly. I think, like I said in the previous episode, as an off the cuff remark, but I'll restate it today. I think that if you don't like Brussels sprouts, you've just never had them prepared for you properly. Exactly. Also, and boiling the shit out of them is not yeah, properly. Yeah. Also, I think that young kids are just digitally wired not to like them so it's not something you should i mean there may be a way that you can get some kids to like it but it is something that you learn to like as you get older as you like coffee as you like red wine it's something that you enjoy the bitterness of yeah i agree i agree well that sounds amazing i'm gonna find that out who did that recipe and then i'll post post it on the on the mastication nation twitter so as alex mentioned it is it is Christmas, sorry, New Year's Eve, Christmas Eve. And we thought we might jam one more episode in before oh, the end of the year. Oh my God, that's so bad. Uh, so, not bearing the lead, our last episode of 2017 is on jam. Jam. J for jam. And this one, and we say it every time, this one is contentious. This one's got some legal definitions in there. It's got some international nomenclature in there. It's got some family language drift in there. So I think that uh, this could be an interesting one. And I apologize, but I may have thrown some puns into my research. So uh, I clearly... <laughs> well, that was the first one. The first one. But uh, <laughs> sorry. The, 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 my opening section in my notes goes, the basics, a jarring experience. I'm turning off your mic. <laughs> I'm turning off your mic. That's it. We're done. I'm going to do the whole episode by myself. Stay with me. Stay with me. I'll um, (laughs) persevere. I'll preserve through this. No. God damn it. Uh, Sorry. All right. I'll try. I'll try. So for our our grandmother lives in perpetually in like 1928. And the invention of the TV. Oh, no. She didn't get a toaster until like 1994. She used to put the toast underneath the, um, you know, the broiler. That's just the how open she... flame grill. Exactly. Yeah. However, in her in her back hall, I don't know what you would actually call it, the side hall, um, it connects the kitchen to the living room. And there was this, or still is, this uh, shelf about I don't know, like a foot taller than Granny's max arm reach. I don't know how she got these up there. Was probably about 150 different jams, marmalades, you know, uh, chutneys from I have no idea how long they've all been up there. And I didn't even, I just thought it was decoration for the longest time until I saw Granny like getting the stepladder out and pulling one down one, one cold winter's morning. 
And that kind of like nicely introduces what jam was. It, it, I don't know who said this, but it's like capturing summer in a jar. You're saving most of what you jam or you, you create into a fruit preserve is stuff that, that only comes out and only blooms in, or, or for the, for the fruit side, only blossoms in the summertime, but you want that all year round. So you're capturing sunshine in a jar and that is what it is. And it's all, yeah. And it, yeah. And it's a lovely, lovely sentiment. And you're also, the yield of that particular bush is far more than you could ever consume fresh, but you don't want it to go to waste. So this is a very sensible way to massively extend the shelf life of of the crop. I remember being nine years old and Granny had a wheelbarrow full of dams, damsons, damsons, damsons. I can never pronounce. Yeah, it could have been damsons, could have been gooseberries, and just going up and down the village lane asking if anyone wanted to take like a bucket full and make them into jam at the end of the summer. A bucket or bushel, yes. Yes, exactly. So a jam falls under the broad umbrella of a fruit preserve, which is fairly self-explanatory. It's your ability to preserve fruit. But there are a lot of different types of things that fall under that umbrella. So you've got your jellies, which we'll talk about in more depth in a second. Uh, You've got your jams. You've got your uh, conserves. You've got your chutneys. You've got your marmalades. And those are all distinct, sometimes legally different things. So I I knew this kind of, but I knew that a marmalade was something that had to have include parts of the peel. So that's why orange marmalade works the best because orange peel kind of works. Uh, You know, chutneys have large chunks of things in there. I'm not sure of the official definition there, but you've got, you know, um, conserves often have things like raisins and nuts in there as well. But the two big heavy hitters, both on this side of the of the Atlantic in the US and uh, and in the UK are jams and jellies. And a lot of people think that jellies are what um, what Americans call jams, but no, jams are the mothership and 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 jellies are sort of the sort of the red-headed stepchild of it. Yeah, they're different. I mean, and 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 I I I will freely admit that I made that same assumption that jam and jelly were the same thing, you know, uh, 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 two people divided by common a, language, the same language, common language. Right. But it's not, they're different, they're different things and they are very different things because a jelly is made from juice. Mm-hmm. I didn't exclusively. know exclusively, exclusively from juice. And it, it, so it's different from jam because it excludes the flesh of the fruit mm-hmm. But there's this so, loop, weird little, I want to say it's a loophole, but you like, so in the US around, around Thanksgiving, they do cranberry jelly, which basically comes out of a can in a can and you pour it out and it comes out in a can shape. And it's just like you could slice hockey pucks out of, but you can also get cranberry jelly with whole cranberries in it. And that's a little bit of like a, a devious step, I would guess, I would say. Uh, because they've made the jelly with the cranberry juice and then just thrown whole cranberries in there at the end ah, of the process. So they haven't gone through the process of actually making a jelly slash jam. Exactly. Uh, the other confusion oh, comes around the fact that English people know 
jelly as a dessert. They know it is what we in America we call Jello, but although that is a brand name, you know it's more with gelatin. And I, I um, can talk about that a little difference because the big thing that is the big player in in jam and most fruit preserves is, is pectin, which is what kind of brings it all together and. And exactly how it sounds, it's the one that stabilizes everything and gels everything. But we can sort of come back to that. So a jam is crushed fruit with sugar and a pectin or a gelatin to hold everything together. Uh, And it holds the flavor of the fruit. You cook it all down, put it into a jar, and then you're set. And we'll dive into a bit more of the specifics in a second. So pectin, as we mentioned, is is the thing that binds it all together. Uh, and pectin is a water-soluble fiber located in the cellular wall of a fruit. Uh, as I as I joke here, it's literally what gels everything into a jelly or a jam or whatever else you want to make. It's natural in fruit, so it occurs. Yeah, it occurs in the fruit. It's not something that that it, you take out of a packet and pour in. It occurs in most fruits that you would that you would put into a jam or a jelly or a right. Whatever. And I guess that's there's a there's a caveat there. There's a lot of it in things like apples, pears, guavas, quinces, plums, gooseberries, and oranges, and a lot of a citrus fruit. It, it's naturally occurring, and therefore you don't necessarily need to add it to your to your jam making. However, soft fruits like cherries, grapes, and strawberries contain small amounts, and and then that's when you're going to be adding it in. And it generally comes from a byproduct of apples. Or uh, these days, it's more coming from from citrus fruits. Uh, I was reading that one of the biggest uh, byproducts of cider making in England back in the day was was the pectin, and they were able to sell that. And generally, if you get the packets of like um, dry pectin, that's come from an apple or uh, or from an orange. But in England, I know that they create sugar that is infused with pectin, and that way you don't have to add two different things. Jam jam sugar or sugar yeah jam sugar made for this purpose so you if you're using those fruits which were very popular are very popular fruits for turning into jams the berries that don't have a lot of naturally occurring pectin you don't then have to add it pectin it just comes in this in this modified or enhanced sugar if you will so i'm by that by that logic if anything that you want to jam uh that doesn't have a lot of its own pectin you can just use these these sugars so i guess you could make Pork jam. <laughs> I mean, you can make anything. I <laughs> well, guess. Well, I mean, yeah, really there is bacon to. jam. We all onion, onion. Think about it. onions doesn't have any pectin in it. You hear about onion jam all the time. Yeah, and well, here's an interesting thing, and we'll get on to that a little bit later. But there are a lot of things that were that call themselves jams, especially when you move into the savory realm, that aren't actually technically jams. That uh, they just they just use that word because everybody knows what a jam is. They know what they're getting when they open. X jam. It's going to be this pulpy, uh, spreadable because that's that's a very important quality. It needs to be spreadable uh, and have bits of stuff in it. Be sort of opaque in character and and be, taste like what it says on the tin. You don't have to go. It's this is a mushed onion. You know, <laughs> yeah. you know stuff. Ectoplasm. The UK seems to have some more specific. Guidelines on, on on what it counts as, and you see, looks like you've done yeah, a little bit j- on here. Jam is the reason why Brexit is happening. <laughs> okay, then jam will save Brexit as well. Apparently, according to was it the Department of Innovation or whatever. So anyway, we'll, I'm not even going to go there. But there is a there is a slightly odd relationship between the UK and Europe on jam, and it is actually proven to be a point of friction on many occasions because. 
in the UK to be legally called jam, it has to contain a minimum of 60% sugar, which is horrific when you say it like that. Hmm. But that's what it is. It's like that's – so that you have a jar of jam, 60% of that is sugar. Okay. That's crazy. So it's – yeah, it's a good way to get diabetes. Uh, however, in France and Germany, which are, are two of the largest um, producers of jam in – or quote-unquote jam in Europe, it's around 50 to 55%. Otherwise, in the UK, it's called fruit spread or conserve. We'll come to conserves in a minute or conserves. But uh, that 60% versus 50 to 55% is where it gets contentious. And this is just a little trivia nugget for you. In EU law, there is something called the mutual recognition principle. So to be recognized as jam in France, the product must first be recognized as jam in its home country, right? Okay. So let's say I make a pulp of fruit in the UK and I add 50% sugar, which by legal definition in the UK is not jam, right? Yep. If I take that jar and I send it over to France, legally in France, it is jam, right? Because they only require 50%. But because it was never jam in the country where it was made, it cannot be called jam anywhere else. Hmm. How? Okay, so that's you know that's good. That means that it, if you go to Europe or Germany and you see British jam on the shelves, it is 60% sugar the way that God intended. But that works both ways. So that if a, uh, if a jam that's made in France with 50% sugar and is legally allowed to be called jam can come to the UK and sit next to a shelf on the shelf to a jam made in Britain that has 10% more – or uh, its volume is 10% more sugar than the French one. So this is – and this is, this is something that has plagued the Department for uh, Environment, Food, and Rural Affairs in the UK forever. And people are – Furious. Furious. So you might say that they're in a bit of a jam. Oh my god. No. <laughs> Stop it. Now, the the old wives' tale, and there isn't a whole lot of science behind this, is that British jam is known for being firmer and being brighter color. And the jelly set, which is its firmness or lack thereof, is apparently quite unique to British jams. And it's because you have that extra sugar. And if you reduce it to compete with continental uh jams then you won't you'll lose that 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 texture that firmness that differentiates british jam from continental jam so (laughs) i had no idea this was such a huge deal but apparently it is i think it's interesting because some of the most popular jam on the shelves in this country are uh the french ones the bon maman which is very very popular i think very very good so I don't know if taste buds are proving this battle to be actually not nearly as potent as it's being made out to be in the uh, halls of government (laughs) or not. Uh, Wow. I didn't know any of that. The only thing I can think about British jam is there was a brand when I was in school. I think it might have been Robinson's, but I don't want to say it might have been Roundtree. The reason I don't want to associate this with one specific brand is because the the lasting memory I have is somewhat offensive, and I can't believe they got away with it. So on the back of one of these jam British jam jars were these collectible sticker slash pullouts of 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 a doll of different of a doll dressed up with different things, and it was in blackface, and I can't remember the name of the brand. And this went on into the late nineties. Robertsons is it Robinsons? Uh, Robertsons. Robertsons. Yep. 
and it was it was there for 144 years this this very offensive and it lasted until 2002 okay cuz i remember the controversy it in kicked off in the 60s when we started to realize that uh, that type of thing is incredible that it took us that long uh, to take us that long in 1983, uh, a lot of um, councils in London banned it, and then you know they've just officially taken it off the uh, off the thing. Apparently, off the my label. boarding school in the 1990s was not so clued in at that time because people would collect the different ones. It was like collect the set of Garbage Pail Kids, but it was incredibly offensive, racist iconography. So yeah, it's. It's very offensive. It's incredibly offensive. It's inherently racist. And even a judge said that you're not allowed to talk about it. I mean, it's 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 very very offensive. <laughs> okay. Um, so shifting gears a little bit away from 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 the legal, political, and ethical byproducts of uh, of what jam is and isn't around Europe. The question I'm sure you're asking yourself is, how do you make it? And so here's my condensed way on how to make a fruit preserve slash jam. Because I'm saying fruit preserve because these are very, very broad statements. uh, And the numbers that we'll get into define what it is. So it's pretty simple. Heat up some fruit, throw in some pectin, mash with some water and sugar, cook. That is it. That's all you got to do. Once you get past that step, that's when it becomes, in my eyes, kind of a combination of molecular biology slash rocket science because a jam a fruit preserve the whole reason you're doing this is not to cook down add sugar and make a sauce you want something that's going to last you according to the british government no longer than two years but go talk to our grandmother about her 1974 gooseberry and i'm sure she'll tell you that it's still fine but it's all about the canning process and uh how you do it how you prep for it 90 percent of what you do before you finish your jam is going to success is going to define the success or failure or the potential botulism you might get from uh, an ill-prepared uh, case of jam. Well, and you're right. I mean, yes, yes, the the process to create it is is straightforward, but it's one of those home cooking processes, one of the rare home cooking processes that come with quite a few warnings and skull and crossbones symbols. Because if you make simple mistakes or you skip a couple of steps here and there, you're going to be in for a bad time. You're going to make a biological weapon, basically. First, let's go through how you can it, how you finish it, and then I can talk about some of the things that might go wrong and some of the uh, signs that you may see that will tip you off. So again, the whole point is to create uh, something that's going to last a long time. So you've cooked all your your fruit, you've thrown in your pectin if it needs it, Uh, you've created your sugar, water, and you've cooked it down. Then what you're doing is you're getting all of your canning materials, your mason jars, the little lid that goes on top, your tongs, your funnel. You're going to put those into boiling water and sterilize them. And then from this moment on, no hands. You want to use gloves. You want to use a sterilized magnet. You want to use something that's not going to introduce any outside pathogens, bacteria, dandruff, whatever it might be. Like You want to make sure that you are clean. So you'll take the the different kinds of uh, jam jars that you're using, let them cool down. So what you don't want to have is thermal shock. Uh, then you'll put in a funnel and you'll 
with the ladle that you've sterilized, pour in your fruit preserve, whatever you're making, leaving about half an or inch and a half, sorry, uh, between the top of the lid and the end of the fruit. Uh, it's what they call head space. Then you you will put the little piece of uh, coverage on the, the the disc on top that's not meant to seal at that point, and then you lightly put on the uh, the the ring to close it all up. And then you're going to boil it again. And what that's doing is it's forcing out the headspace to create a vacuum. And that's what's going to create the the long life, the, the the shelf life of the of the of the jam. Because without that, you've got air in there, and you don't want air. Air is what kills food. Air is what causes things to uh, degrade. So if you've done it right, it's going to last a while. If you've done it wrong, there's a couple things that can go wrong. Firstly, let's just start with some things that are not the end of the world, but just may not be visually that impressive. If you open up your jam and all the fruit has come to the – it's sort of separated into clear jelly – but no fruit in it, and the fruit is at the top of the bottom. That just means that you haven't given it enough time to cool down before you put everything in there. And because you got it too hot, it the fruit sank to the bottom or, or did not evenly distribute between the two places. And that's just not the end of the world. You'll have to remix it up. Uh, crystals, not again, not the end of the world. It just means that you've got sugar crystals in there because it wasn't diluted properly. It's still fine, not going to kill you. The next two are where you get into... A little bit more of a dangerous situation. If you see bubbles in your jam, it might not be deadly, but it's the sign of fermentation. And so unless you're looking to make some alcoholic jam, which maybe works, I'm sure there are people that are making a living out of that, you haven't been clean enough when you've been doing uh, your setup and some yeast got in there and yeast just floats around in the atmosphere, unfortunately, and you're going to be creating a situation where you have bubbles in your jam. Too much of that, if it, if it ferments too much, you might get really, really sick. In in commercial, when they fill the jam jars uh, at, at a commercial level, they often use a flame around the rim mm-hmm. and the lid of the jars to, to destroy any yeast or mold that, that might have snuck in at any point during, again, what is almost a surgically clean process. But they do that, that double thing. And then they actually, they inject uh, steam right before the lid goes on to create a mm-hmm. vacuum uh, which and then prevents spoilage and any air getting in and it also which that's what pulls down the uh, the safety button yeah yeah exactly by forcing out the air and you need a lot of space to do this and you also need to believe that you don't have uh, you know a gross kitchen or being a gross person yeah the the last one is the obvious one if you're seeing mold that just means that you didn't get a good seal on it you didn't get force all the air out um, you left it as a as a hospitable situation for for things to grow and that way a trip to the hospital lies so if you see mold get rid of it instantaneously because you don't want that you don't want that inside you and i think to a lot of jam commercial made jams they were one of the first people to do the um the 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 button on top of the uh, lids. Yes. So if you've ever noticed that once you should always check on your, when you're going to the supermarket and you buy jam or anything that you want to be not fermenting or have mold in it. If you see the little, if you can push down on the top of the lid and it pops, that means that there's air inside there and it's no go. It means it's either been opened before or something's growing in there. Once you've opened your own jam, obviously that's going to 
get rid of that seal, but uh, that means the seal has been broken. So you can check on that. Home jams now aren't necessarily going to have that, but if nine times out of ten you'll see that the if you can't see the mold, you'll see the mason jar lid kind of buckling a little bit because uh, of the pressure that's building up. Um, so you don't want to you don't want to be going down that route. No, no, absolutely not. That would not be good. And again, that's one of the reasons why they inject that steam is to create the vacuum which pulls the tamper evident lid button down until you then release the seal when it's in your home and you're ready to to consume it. Which actually brings us on if you're finished talking about yeah, the way yeah. people can Maybe. kill themselves <laughs> with their jam uh, is how you use it. Do you like jam? Eh. I mean. Eh. I don't know why we have a problem with the classic, you know, honeys and we don't like, I don't like jam. So, you know, a sandwich with jam on it doesn't do anything for me. I might use it in something else, but I don't like it by itself. I like jam. I like good jam. I like, I like English jam. I like European jam. I like, I like jam that is homemade almost exclusively, or I don't know. If, I don't know if higher end is the right word, but when you get the little packets in a hotel and it's just sort of this very gelatiny, it's probably fruit spread. It probably doesn't have enough enough sugar in it. I like the big chunks of the fruit in it, and I think it's you know a PB and J is wonderful. I love peanut butter and jelly from time to time, but where I think jam really shines for me is. The occasional breakfast, weirdly, I don't know why, but I associate it with sitting outside on a warm deck somewhere on a piece of chunky buttered toast. Okay. And I think there's there's fewer things. And you do it, you know, you do it either, you know, British or continental style where you're breaking pieces of bread off and you're buttering them and you're putting pieces as opposed to buttering and jamming the whole thing. I think that that's great. And, you know, raspberry is the best, strawberry, and then we start to wane very, very quickly for me. Are you not a but are yeah. you not a marmalade fan? No, our father is obsessed with marmalade, and I don't really not a not a huge fan. But marmalade isn't jam. Do I know? But I'm just saying if there's, I mean, like, I'm sure we're gonna get angry letters to the editor saying I've had my marmalade and you know it's better than any jam or you know chutneys, which usually live in the in the savory world anyway, um, or my my lemon. Well, curd. okay, but here's the thing: there's a very very important difference d- differentiation between our our continental or actually our our transatlantic cousins here. In the UK, uh, marmalade is made with a, a Seville orange, a Spanish orange, and that has it's really high pectin content and gives it that really good set. And it's the since there's a lot of peel, which you mentioned at the top of the show, you can see floating. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of the point. That's what defines it. It gives that really a bitter edge to it, which some people like. It's it's a very it's got a passionate following, so it's got that bitter taste. Yeah, it's to the it. white However, pith, the pith between the yeah, skin and the fruit. The pith bit, right? And that's you know if you if you if you eat a, if you take a bite out of an orange without peeling it, you'll know exactly what we're talking about. However, in America, marmalade is sweetened. Okay. So you, it's it will taste totally different in America than it will in in the UK because you're talking sweet versus bitter. So, you know, we we may get people saying, "I love marmalade," and they may be talking about two completely different things. But uh, it's not my thing. I mean, like you said, primarily in the UK, it's Seville oranges, but you can make it from lemons, limes, any citrus. But you can also make it with bergamot, which I think actually would be really interesting to try. So that's a great flavor. Uh, basically, and then you, or you can combine them. You can combine like lemon and bergamot or orange and, and grapefruit or lemon and lime. And, and that would all yield a, 
so what is defined as 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 a marmalade mm. it's yeah it's just it's british marmalade isn't my thing i haven't tried american marmalade. Hmm. and anything with more sugar usually is gonna taste sweeter so maybe it's more your yeah. thing overcome that bitterness so i guess the the only thing that we have not talked touched upon is sort of the savory application of, of a jam Yes, yeah, and there are. You will have seen them all over the place, especially in um, your more hipster of eating establishments, as well as burger joints. Uh, you, things like chili jam, which is the same process. Uh, Nigella Lawson has got a very good recipe for this, but it's often made with cider vinegar, so it's technically not a jam. Uh, things like bacon jam, which isn't jam either. That's a relish, and the difference is that it's cooked and pickled. Uh, and then used as a condiment, so the process is different. It can't. It doesn't have fifty or sixty percent sugar, because that would be gross. So they're not. Again, they're not the jams. It goes back to that point I made earlier about we, we're just slapping the label jam onto something just because it's easier than calling it something else. And when you think when you when you talk about a relish, you your brain, or at least my brain, immediately thinks pickly uh, and salty because you're talking about like you know burger relish made of, of dill pickles. You're talking about uh, Branston pickle, which is a, a, you know, a relish. Um, well, like the relish, it goes, I mean, relish as a uh, all encapsulating word. Piccalilli is a relish. Yeah. Or, or, but I was going to say for like um, su- sushi, you get the things on the side, which people sometimes call like sushi relish, like your, your um, onion that was the pink onion and like, you know, your pickled garlic, your pickled ginger. People call that yeah. relish. Yeah, mixed pickle, anything pickled like that. Those are all, those are all relishes. Even gentleman's relish. Are you familiar with gentleman's relish? Sounds like a euphemism for chlamydia. It does sound like, yeah, it does. It is. Uh, it was created in 1828 by John Osborne. It is a anchovy paste. Okay. Yes, uh, and you spread it thinly, will thinly mm-hmm. on buttered white toast. Uh, or with cucumber, and you then eat it as a sandwich. Then, sorry, this is reminding me of an English, the tra- tra- traditional English breakfast things. As we're talking about it, one of the most famous ones is uh, is a yeast extracted um, spread. And uh, we were watching my wife and I and and, and my in laws were watching uh, Blue Planet the other day, and an animal came on, a small mammal, uh, rodent, and uh, Kate goes. Uh, is that a marmite? <laughs> <laughs> it was very endearing. Uh, it was a marmot, um, but like it was very a endearing. Uh, yeah. yeah, we should maybe M is marmite because that will be basically fisticuffs. Yeah. So you cannot, by definition, have savory jam because jam needs to have at least fifty percent sugar to be called a jam. So they are jam-like substances, but they are not jam. Yes. Uh, the only thing I regret not doing for this episode was um, doing a little bit more research on a bit of English slang on why jam and jammy and jammy dodger, why someone being jammy was considered lucky. And I, I should have looked that up. I don't know that one. But like you've ever heard in England, someone says if someone is a jammy dodger, that means that they're a lucky bugger. They're you know, someone who has fallen on good times when they don't deserve it. So maybe I'll, I'll, I'll circle back in our next episode and, and see what we can get out of that. Uh, there are a few people who think they know. Uh, and I think I'm, I'm sure a lot of these are not true. But there was there's one theory that it comes from the construction jamais de guerre, 
which is a French word. I don't know why it would be anything to do with that. Uh, and then the other one is jam boys, which were covered themselves in jam to keep insects away from their f- employers in the British Far East. I mean, we're talking like centuries and centuries ago. Jam was an expensive commodity and obviously, as we all appreciate, rather nice. So the jam boy got to keep it and was considered very lucky. And I'm absolutely sure that's just not true. But it's or someone who got weird... out of someone who got out of that duty because you probably get bitten to death by mosquitoes. If you dodged that duty, you were a jammy dodger. Very possibly. I think there's also this uh, colloquial usage of the word jam, meaning something that's easy. Hmm. Uh, so I don't know, but it is. Yeah, it's a weird. Any uh, linguistic majors out there who want to write in, let us know if you have any other thoughts on that. Because that one, that one just came out of nowhere, and I didn't didn't think about that. The Jam Boy one is just nonsense. Yeah. I wonder if it's got anything to do with ham. Jam ball. No. Like, yeah. <laughs> oh, well. Well, well I think this is kind of... Uh, I, this is one I think we we disagree on because I a good jam, I think, is wonderful. It's not something I'm going to eat every day, especially when 60% of it is, is sugar. I have but, a, uh, I every have now and then when I for anything that allows me... Anything that allows you to continue... I, I have reverence for preservation. I guess mm. because like jerkies, like jams, like you know, any preserves are basically alchemy. You're taking something from the summer and you're able to like tra- it's time travel, I guess, more than alchemy. You're allowed to eat it in the middle of winter and it takes you back to what that flavor was at that moment. You are capturing that sunlight on that day. Yeah, yeah, it's rather nice to think of it like that. That you know, the summer, a particularly wonderful summer is then captured and stored away in a shelf for a dark December 31st as it is here <laughs> when the rain is blowing sideways and you just want to pop open the jam and all of a sudden you've got these these summer berries bursting out of the jar. So a lovely idea. let us know what your favorite kind of jam is. Uh, are you a different kind of fruit? Do preserve? you make jam? Do you make, if you Have make you ever jam, killed anybody yeah. with your jam? Are you the black widow of black currant? Um, let us know. Oh, that was good. <laughs> that was so good. So good. Oh, that makes up for all of your crappy puns. <laughs> Thanks. Um, let us know and let us know if there's any like uh, classic steps that people should not be doing that will ruin your batch. I know that next episode is K. And yeah, we got, I have, we have a guest lined up for that. Really? If, it's, if it's if it's Kale, I'm that. not coming to the episode. I'm walking off this show. Oh boy, do I have a doozy for oh, you. God. I have an expert on a subject who literally wrote the book. Uh, He's going to come on and drop some knowledge for K. Oh God, is it ketamine? Yes. <laughs> we're going to yes, we're going to ride is. some special K. All right. All right. Well, we to are, everybody yes. that is uh enjoying their New Year's Eve this evening, have a great one and be safe. Uh if you are listening to this in the new year, let's hope 2018 is a bit more palatable and digestible than 2017. Yes, good food words there. And until next year, everybody. Well. <laughs> <laughs>